Hey Radio Rothbard fans, the Mises Institute has a new free book for you. Dr. Guido Holzman's How Inflation Destroys Civilization. Learn how inflation isn't only making us poorer, it's harming our culture, mental well-being, and the moral foundations of civilization itself. Get your free copy today at Mises.org slash RothPodFree. Hey guys, this is Thoat Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and if you're listening to the show, you're no doubt familiar with Human Action, Ludwig von Mises' masterpiece. This is the 75th anniversary of its publication, and in honor of that, we are holding a very special event on May 16th through the 18th, a conference dedicated to this very important book. We're going to have scholars from all around the world coming in, including Bob Murphy, Guido Holzman, Joe Salerno, Tom DeLorenzo, a whole list of all-star Austrian scholars. Now, as a Radio Rothbard listener, we've got a special opportunity for you. If you go to Mises.org slash raffle, that's double R, raffle, uh, you can enter in to get a free admission to this very special conference. Also, if you're a student, we've got scholarships available for you at the event site, uh, Mises.org slash events. So I hope to see you guys there, and now enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. This is Ryan McMakin. I'm editor with the Mises Institute, and with me, of course, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And this week we have a guest. Our guest is Doug French. Now, if you've been reading Mises.org for any period of time at all, you know that Doug is one of our regular contributors. Um, he's also president emeritus of the Mises Institute, author of two books, Early Speculative Bubbles and Increases in the Money Supply, and author of Walk Away, The Rise and Fall of the Homeownership Myth. And uh, both of these, you can uh, come on Mises.org and link to those, and we make them available to you. Uh, and by the way, Doug received his master's degree in economics at UNLV under uh, Murray Rothbard and Hans-Hermann Hoppe. So uh, this guy's well-versed in Austrian economics. Also the issue of booms and busts, speculative bubbles. And this is a guy who knows stuff about the real estate market. Also his background is in banking uh, and mortgage banking. And uh, he's lived through a couple of cycles, at least two of these as well, the Great Recession, the current cycle. And so we, we were having him on because we want to talk about real estate right now. We want to talk about commercial real estate, uh, which looks like it's going to be an important issue in the current cycle. Now, he's got two recent articles that I think I'm going to be drawn upon, upon uh, for this. And one is on Mises Wire called, The Fed Claims the Banking System is Sound and Resilient. The bank's balance sheets say otherwise. And that's from a few days ago here on The Wire. And then another one from Power Market on how CRE maturities are piling up and how that's an issue for banks. So, Doug, can you give us the basics of what's going on in commercial real estate right now? Why is this something we should keep an eye on and why this is something that is going to be important in the next cycle? Well, what we have is... Uh commercial real estate due to two factors primarily. Uh, but number one, the increase in interest rates. Uh, 
during the um, the Fed experiment of zero interest rates uh, had attracted real estate developers and real estate investors to borrow money at uh, incredibly low rates, you know, 3%, 4%. And in some cases, they, they borrowed this money at uh, fluctuating rates. In other words, they weren't fixed. Um, they got as low as rate as they could. Uh, when you have low rates, you have what's known as low capitalization rates or cap rates. You hear that term thrown around. The cap rate is, think of it as, for people who are familiar with stocks, that is the kind of the inverse of a P.E. ratio. If a stock is trading at 20 P.E., the real estate um, term for that would be a 5% cap rate. Um, 25% PE would be a 4% cap rate. And that's how buildings, uh, commercial buildings are valued uh, based on a cap rate. So right now you might even have tenants that are paying their bills on time. And yet if the bank or their internal or external regulators come in and say, hey, get a new appraisal on this. We think that, we think your loans and not, uh, not covered by collateral properly. If that rate fell from, say they lent it, assuming a 4% cap rate for the value and the new appraisal comes in at a 5% cap rate, which could easily happen, that's a 20% fall in value. And if you made an 80% loan, which probably that would be a little aggressive, but if you made a 70, 75% loan, suddenly you're very close to being, very close to being underwater. Now, to the other issue is that uh, during the COVID years, people were allowed to work from home, told to work from home, Dr. Fauci told us all to hunker down, shelter in place. And uh, guess what? Nobody wanted to come back. So you have office buildings in New York. You have office buildings in other uh, L.A., San Francisco, other areas where uh, you've got tenants that, uh, yeah, they may be still paying the lease, but they don't have anybody showing up to work. So when those leases roll off, they're not going to take that lease, that space anymore. And these buildings are going to be in serious trouble. And it doesn't quite happen like a stock market crash. Real estate takes time because the loans don't come due right away. But my point of the, the piece that was on the blog was that uh, suddenly we have nearly a billion dollars of loans maturing this year and when those loans come due the bank goes out and gets a new appraisal on that property um, they're not going to have near as much collateral as they did before and what they'll do is they'll ask the developer who doesn't know how to spell cash to come in with more cash to go ahead and um, 
and extend that loan, probably at a higher interest rate that will not, their leases may not cover. And you'll have people walking away from, from buildings. You'd be big, um, big real estate operators like Brookfield, uh, Blackstone, they've already walked away from properties. And this is going to play out over the next two or three years. Well, in office vacancy, of course, is when when things turn even a little bit sour, you, you can start to see some pretty huge vacancies there, even in previous cycles, even when people actually went to offices <laughs> to work. Um, and But of course, this seems to be on a whole new level. Um, where even with economic improvement, you didn't see a surge in a resurgence in demand for office space. Um, but is this this beyond office also? Uh, I mean, where are we when we're looking at strip malls, retail, those sorts of commercial properties? I would contend that even though strip malls, even though multifamily does not get mentioned in the same breath with office buildings, that the same issue with interest rates is going to plague these properties as well. There were plenty of uh, properties in, in, in my hometown here of Las Vegas. Uh, uh, properties were purchased uh, in the multifamily at, at uh, 4% caps, three even in the 3% cap range with the idea that they would be able to raise rents and make the project work, and plus they had low interest rate loans. So those those loans that they were paying four percent on two years ago, three years ago, now they're having to re-up those loans at seven, eight, maybe higher, and uh, the project just won't work at that point. And the, these are not all bank loans. The big banks are certainly not. Um, are not exposed to this, but the smaller banks and the regional banks are very much exposed to these big real estate projects, small real estate projects, because they don't have anything else to lend on. If you're Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan, you can issue credit cards. You can you can you can make car loans real cheap. You've got the infrastructure to do that. But if you're a local community bank, if you're a regional bank, you load up on real estate because that's the only game in town. Yeah, that's an important distinction to be made also, right, is a lot of what we're talking about, about the groups that are in deep trouble. It's not these huge banks. It's uh, It tends to be overwhelmingly these more local and regional community banks. Uh, and from what I've seen over the years, it's those that start to feel the pain fastest from defaulting businesses. Uh, from uh, local commercial real estate uh, because they just don't have access to these larger portfolios where they can, they've just got so many income streams when you're JP Morgan that it's just a totally different ballgame for these small local banks, right? Exactly. And, and as when uh, Silicon Valley Bank failed and Signature Bank failed, where did all those depositor runs? They ran to J.P. Morgan, and J.P. Morgan will give you virtually nothing on your on your money. Whereas the the smaller banks, the regional banks, if you look at CD rates, they're having to pay up um, to try to draw some of that money out of the 
out of the Fed funds or out of the money market. And um, so that puts even a tighter squeeze on the smaller and, and regional banks. Jamie doesn't have that problem. Jamie can sit back and wait for the next failure, whether it's going to be New York uh, Community Bank, which, by the way, is not a community bank. Um, they call themselves a community bank. They absorbed a lot of the assets from Signature. They probably wish they didn't. That was the focus of the article that we led the discussion with. Um, they inherited all this uh, multifamily, this rent control apartments in New York, and uh, some other uh, office-type prop properties that uh, I think it was the OCC that made them write them down at the end of, end of the year. Imagine banks at the end of the year, the last thing bankers want to do is take a write-off like that because, number one, they had, to, uh, they had to show a loss for the quarter. Number two, they had to uh, cut their dividend. And number three, you can imagine some people got fired and some people didn't get bonuses. And that's, that's the name of the game. It's the last thing. When I, when I uh, emphasize the word begrudgingly, take those uh, reserves, uh, I mean it. I've been there. And uh, believe me, banks are going to be very slow around the country to make these uh, adjustments to their reserves or take these losses or order new appraisals. They're going to be, have to be goaded either by the regulators or um, possibly by the stock market. Um, you know, the stock market will be a good tell on this. If you watch the CRE uh, or KRE, excuse me, uh, uh, ETF for regional banks. Uh, it's done nothing but go down, and uh, it's going to be a good tell as to the uh, the health of the regional banking. And of course, we've seen a consolidation of the banking industry. I mean, you know, Dodd Frank, with all the news, new rules and regulations that came with that, as a response of you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine. You know, we got you know gigantic bills, which you know only. Uh, amplified with all the rule writing provisions within that um, has led to consolidation. These these risks, these stresses that are piling up now, um, and of course, you know, we we're still dealing with some of the protection plans kind of from that response to Silicon Valley Bank, um, some of which are expiring, I believe, next month. Um, and so, you know, the, the Fed is you know, a lot of the tension has kind of gone away uh, from the pressures that led to Silicon Valley Bank's demise. Um, but all this is leading to a, a, a gradual consolidation of the banking industry, which, you know, particularly from, from our perspective, the, the dangers of you know, the relationship between the feds and bigger banks, the willingness of them doing all sorts of, of spooky things that we don't like, um, creates non-economic concerns out there. Um, but, you know, are, are you concerned about kind of this, this gradual pattern of consolidation, um, which, you know, is, is seem to be, be amplified by some of these underlying stresses? Well, it's, it's inevitable. Uh, when I started in banking, which is a long, long time ago, say 1986, um, when I moved to Vegas, happened to be the same year that uh, uh, Murray Rothbard moved to Vegas and Hans Hoppe moved to Vegas. But um, when I started, there was probably 15,000 15, banks in the country. Now we're down to 
4,000. Uh, so you're going to have a continual consolidation. Now, some of these people, there are people that are trying to make the case that this will happen. Uh, the market will, will happen, that banks will hook up and, and not be forced to by the, uh, the FDIC or other regulators. But I would contend that that will not happen very often. And the reason is, is that most of these banks, when interest rates were, and again, this goes back to the Fed's policy of zero interest rates, when they had all these deposits rolling into their banks um, during the COVID years and uh, uh, the fire hose of, of fiscal policy that went into bank accounts, People put money in the bank. What were the banks going to do? They didn't have, they didn't have loans to make. What they did was they bought treasury securities at less than one percent, one percent, whatever it was. And now they're um, they have unrealized losses in the billions as a, you know, as an industry. Well, those unrealized losses they can call they can keep them on their books that way as long as they call them held to maturity. But the minute the two banks try to merge, those unrealized losses become realized losses. So it is very unlikely that you will have a lot of bank mergers to, to to consolidate. What you're going to have is you're going to have failures that are going to be tipped over by real estate one way or the other. The Fed will be the match or the, the FDIC will be the matchmaker over, over a weekend and uh, they either find Jamie Dimon or if they feel like Jamie's got enough or too much then they'll they'll find other banks to uh, buy up, uh, take over the deposits and uh, essentially the shell game continues. Well, and I mean, just to, to make it clear for the more casual listeners on the issue, right? When you when you're talking about these small banks avoiding defaults and being able to pay their loan payments to make their debt service, um, we should be clear, right, that banks are not sitting upon these piles of money somewhere right and when you <laughs> and when you talk about how okay they're they're required to increase a loan loss reserve and, and take steps to to avoid um, a, a bank failure situation they have to take that money away from where it's been employed in other places right these banks they don't have like extra cash lying around and and that seems relevant also to the issue of r where Okay, so as interest rates go up, they're they're going to have to pay more for that debt service, which I guess if the economy was good, they could just raise rents, but they can't do that now, right? Is is what I suspect is that oh, you're going to your strip mall and you're saying, hey, we're going to raise everybody's rents. That's just going to increase defaults, right? And so now they've just got no income on those units instead of insufficient income, as had been the case. Absolutely. Uh, more and more we hear about customers, uh, you know, availing themselves of uh, buy now and pay later. Well, what's that do to the 
to the strip mall occupant? Uh, how how do they what do they pay? How do they pay the rent on a promise from from various customers? Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, now banks uh, folks for those listening who 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 believe that. Uh, you know, banks are keeping their $1,000 deposit somewhere lying around in the vault, waiting for them to show up. Um, that's just plain not true. They took that $1,000 and they lent it out to somebody. They lent it out likely to a real estate um, developer, in some cases, that may pay it back. Maybe he's got a year maturity, maybe a two-year maturity, and, and maybe can pay it back if the project works out. Except... The depositor can come and get that money any day. So you've got this mismatch of where the money goes, the assets that are lent on, and uh, what uh, depositors can do. They can come and get the money anytime. And that's what happened with, in the case of, of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, All it, it took in that case was some high power, they had an incredible amount of un, uninsured deposits, that's deposits over 250,000. And they had a lot of uh, Silicon Valley, some of them were on a ski trip and they just moved their money over to Jamie Dimon's JP Morgan Chase while they were heading to the ski slopes. And so you had a 48 hour run and they were done. That's all it took. This was a huge bank, second largest banking failure in the United States. The, if, if you ask the normal person, they don't, even, they don't even know anything about SVB and that failure last year. And if you said, oh, well, was that one of the biggest failures in U.S. banking? Oh, I don't know. I, that was just a small bank. So this... They continually try to poo-poo this uh, this idea that these are these are large banks, and it goes back to back to Tho's point that the the industry is consolidating. So whenever you do have a failure, now occasionally you can have that failure out in Ulysses, Kansas, that happened a few months ago, or uh, or, or the one in Iowa, or whatever the case may be, but. You get anything that that hits the radar at all. These are very, very sizable financial institutions. Well, I think there's an interesting dynamic there as well, where the risk of bank runs with modern technology, and you kind of alluded to to it with you know the ability to be out skiing and be able to to kind of effortlessly effortlessly move your money to a larger bank at the the prospects of uh, issues going on with your institution. Um, you know, the ECB was warning uh, uh, about the impact of social media on bank runs. Social media was blamed by a lot of DC regulators um, in, in the aftermath of Silicon Valley. Um, yeah, I, th I think the, the dynamic there, of, you know, I, I could see increasing calls for, for censorship of bad economic data um, going forward um, from, from a variety of angles um, that, that feeds into a lot of the, the authoritarian uh, uh, ideals of uh, a lot of the people in charge right now. Uh, but that 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 speed um, with a, a banking system that you know already has you know 
if, if there's any break of trust, you know, this, this entire framework of the fractional reserve banking system that we have right now in this techni- technological, you know, very quick windows of concerns and things like that. I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, regulators are not necessarily known for, for their speed with these sort of things, though. You know, we saw some of the Silicon Valley Bank being able to handle it in kind of back, back rooms over the weekend. Um, but that is an additional pressure to all these underlying issues with uh, balance sheets. Um, definitely adds a, an interesting twist to the current banking environment. I wrote a piece recently, uh, will fractionalized banking survive the 21st century? And that's, that's essentially what that was all about. But the regulators, you're right. I mean, they're not one step behind, they're, they're miles behind. They're still fighting the 2008 war. Mm-hmm. And that's why when, uh, now, that we have a, now that we have another real estate problem, this is right in their wheelhouse. So they're going to be sniffing around, um, looking to downgrade loans, and they, they think that's where the problem is. But probably the bigger problem, as Phil points out, is that uh, people can, can move, their, move their money with their phone, um, on their laptop, on their PC, um, you know, at the, with the Flick of a mouse. Um, I think Rothbard would be, uh, he, he'd be cheering this on, uh, frankly. And I don't think he could, uh, uh, he could probably hardly believe it that you could, that could do this. No more lining up. He'd say, yeah, we don't have to line up anymore. We can just, you know, we can just click our mouse and, you know, start a bank <laughs> run. That's great. Um, but, uh, well, you know, you I'm sure, Doug, you have your finger on the pulse of the bankers on the ground and like the human beings we call bankers. And this level always interests me, just how bankers view things. Um, and it, it just reminds me of how in 2007 we we managed he was in town. He was in Denver. So we managed to get a very short meeting with Angelo Mazzillo uh, and just said, who was head of Countrywide Bank. It's a huge bank, huge uh, mortgage bank. Um, and sure. we knew in our state that we had uh, a foreclosure problem. They were really mounting, people were getting evicted, all of that sort of thing. So we said, Angelo, right, you, you know that like you've got a lot of foreclosures piling up here in Colorado. And he had no idea. And he was completely unaware. He managed to bring in some underlings who, when he asked them, oh, do we have a lot of foreclosure? They're like, yes. We do, but you know, it's not, it's a small part of the portfolio. Don't feel, didn't feel the need to mention it to you, that sort of thing. So it, the bankers are way behind on just the kind of recognizing there was a problem back then. I mean, well, where are bankers now uh, in terms of just their view of the issue? Well, I think they're right now, they're, they're where we were back in, you know, 06, you know, 05, 06. And I, I got this question the other day, um, uh, because if, if you live in Vegas, there's a lot going on here. There's 115 people a day moving here. Obviously, some homes are being built and so on and so forth. And they go, oh, all this development, gosh. And I said, you know what? Last year, we probably, there were like 8,000 new homes built here. And they go, wow, that's a lot. I said, think about 2006. There was 36,000 new homes built in Las Vegas. 36,000. We'll probably never see that again. 
the problem is when you're on the inside, and I was on the inside looking out, not on the outside looking in, uh, but when your livelihood depends on making that next loan and, and you know, or if you're a developer building that next subdivision, uh, you just don't think it's, you don't think it's ever going to, uh, you're going to end. And, you know, Mozilla's, uh, I, I remember one of his lieutenants came and spoke at a uh, marketing meeting that I used to attend when I was a banker. And this guy pounded the lectern, saying the biggest impediment to home more or to home ownership in the United States is the down payment. We have to get rid of the down payment. <laughs> and uh, it's just hysterical to think about now. Um, but everybody was, you know, a room full of primarily real estate agents were nodding their head, uh, you know, in unison. Uh, thinking, yeah, if we could just get just get away from the idea of people have to actually make a down payment on a on a purchase, then uh, all would be right with the the housing uh, the housing market. And now today, uh, what we see uh, the housing market is kind of dead uh, in a way. I work at a shop where we have a mortgage arm. We made one mortgage loan last year, I think. Um, you know, everybody's got to, you know, if they own a home, they've got a, you know, 4% mortgage or 3.5% mortgage or whatever, and they're not going anywhere. Um, and uh, uh, very few of, the, uh, few of these loans are VA loans or FHA loans that, that allow for an extension or, or uh, an assumption, I mean. And, uh, and even if... Um, even if you do try to sell your home and uh, the buyer tries to assume your loan, it takes months and months and months uh, to try to do it because you're dealing with some kind of FHA or VA bureaucracy. So, um, you know, that has really gummed up the, uh, uh, the housing market. So we have a different, uh, certainly a different dynamic going in housing right now. Uh, than we had back then, and the issue now is is with commercial, which, yeah, I there's there's parts of the country that are still very small, as, uh, strong as far as uh, commercial real estate, but again, uh, that naughty thing called higher interest rates. Uh, these are actually normal interest rates. There's nothing. People act like this was like Paul Volker, Volker showed up, and these are the prime is twenty percent. It's idiotic. This is a. These are actually normal interest rates. But if you run into a developer, he'll just he'll just go crazy with these incredibly high interest rates. Not incredibly high at all. And I don't. You know, rates are probably going to stay this way for. Quite right, and you don't have to be elderly to remember interest rates at five or six percent. You just have to remember the late nineteen nineties. So I, mean... <laughs> no, I, I remember buy, I remember builders uh, when I was in the business that were buying down rates for purchases in their subdivision. They were buying down rates to seven, 
were buying down rates to 6.99, so they could put an ad in a paper to attract people to their subdivision. So this idea that a, you know, 6% mortgage rates or 7% mortgage rates just, you know, keeps everyone out of the, the housing market. I, I suppose it does make it tough for, for younger people. Um, probably Tho wants to jump in here. But uh, for us old folks, yeah, this is, these are kind of, these are kind of normal rates. If you could go out, if you could go out and get a 7% mortgage. Um, but uh, uh, it does make it tough for the next generation. I, I agree. And as more and more debt gets piled on in every place, from the federal government at 33 trillion to, to um, uh, corporate debt, to uh, now private debt through um, uh, various uh, firms. Um, just debt has run rampant, and uh, the, the higher it goes, the, the more people are going to, to pay the price. And not be well, and it seems it. also part of the problem for young people, uh, first-time homebuyers and such, is also the fact that in a normal market, prices would go inverse to interest rates. And prices would go down yes. as interest rates went up. But the market's that's, frozen that's due true. to a variety of factors, and the prices aren't going down, yeah. so you're just screwed on both price and the interest rate now. You know, well, and particularly here in Florida, where I mean, you know, where, where, where I'm at, um, you know, we, we've seen prices continue to go up, and, and I, I think one aspect of that is kind of the financialization of, of housing with the, the Airbnb market, where you have you know in, investors coming in to, to neighborhoods and buying up properties that you know might historically have you know been rental properties. Um, I'm, I'm in a service industry town. You know, you, you went from having you know four waiters renting a, a three bedroom house or four bedroom house to being purchased from someone um, you know outside the state, uh, being able to turn into to rental properties. I, I know that's creating a lot of tension uh, tension here. Uh, but yes, yeah, so you have that dynamic where again younger people, like you know, I've been talking to friends for years. Um, took me for a while to to finally get the courage to actually buy a house because I kept waiting for for prices to go down. I'm very glad I did in 2019. I would not be able to afford the house that I have right now if I had, if I had waited there. Um, but yeah, there, there was this continuing expectations among people my age that, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to wait it out, wait it out. Now, if they've mass missed that period of low rates, um, now they're, they're really, <laughs> really feeling anxious. And I feel like going into this year, right, the assumption was, oh, well, the Fed's going to lower rates. You know, that was the expectation. Now there's increasing interest rate um, concerns out there. The, the Fed, you know, seems to be, you know, they 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 were in, indicating a pivot at the end of the year. Now, now, you know, they're, they're seems less certain about that. So again, trying to trying to guess what the Fed's going to do, particularly when the Fed's own track record of their own interest rate policies is, has not been great. As Jonathan Newman does a great job of of uh, 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 illustrating uh, every every few months on on Mises Wire, um, you try to play that game of guessing the the future of the Fed. Um, leaving a lot of people uh, quite uh, quite upset right now. Yeah, there's no question. I, you know, I used to get when I was, uh, you know, had the job down in Auburn. You know, people used to ask me, uh, young people, should I buy a house? And I would always say, Are you married? I'd say, Yeah. And I said, If your wife wants a house, just buy a house. Don't try to time it. 
one way or the other. Just make her happy because, the, you know, and because if you if you have a higher rate, if you can afford, if you can qualify at seven percent right now, get in a deal and and uh, because I and I mentioned this in an article I wrote recently. I think there's three three strands to to a home purchase. You're betting on the land, and land tends to go up in value because uh, dollars become uh, worth less over time. So land tends to go up if you're in a growth market. You consume the house. It's like a big, it's like a big refrigerator, and you're short the bond market. And if you're short at a high rate, I mean, it's, you know, it's even better because every mortgage you get, you're allowed to pay it off early and refinance. And plus, you get to write off the interest, especially if you're a younger person. You don't make that much money. It still qualifies as a, as a tax write-off. They've done everything they can to make, you know, everything but point arrows at houses to tell people, Buy a house, but you know, I I know I still know people that are they're trying to they're waiting for the the big crash, the real big one, you know, where houses go to zero. I assume, but uh, it's just it's just not uh, it's just not going to happen. I mean, and um, and in some states you can walk away. Uh, somebody I know wrote a certain book about that, but. Uh, yeah, it's um, owning a home is a is boy nine times out of ten in history it's it's been a it's been a because it's so so rigged by the government uh, for you to do well. Well, let's look at that rigging a little bit as kind of we wrap up here. Um, you mentioned in uh, your recent article on um, bank portfolios from WIRE, uh, you note that uh, the bank term funding program is going to be phased out next month. This is just part of what we're seeing here in the, 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 the central bank's effort to just keep all this liquidity sloshing around in the banking sector, um, just as an, as an effort to, to keep the party going. They, they don't want to take away that punch bowl. And so the bank term funding program was part of that. Uh, and this just leads us to the question of, well, wh why not just lower interest rates then? Why why are they phasing out the bank term funding program? Uh, it, it seems that, right, we need the Fed to keep things going, but the, but the Fed just refuses to lower interest rates. The Fed is uh, taking some liquidity out of the sector. Uh, I, I encounter a lot of industry people even, usually guys are a little less seasoned, um, well, why is why is doesn't the Fed just lower interest rates and then things will be fine again? Um, now, something that I note is that well, inflation is a political problem, and <laughs> it's not just strictly a matter of uh, bean counting at the Fed. But I mean, wh what what is what are they thinking at the central bank? Why why not just why not just fix it with lower interest rates and easy money again? Well, I guess that implies that the idea that. Um Jay Powell could uh, open one of the windows at the Eccles building and, and lean out and, and just shout, we're lowering rates. But what, what they have to do to lower rates, of course, is create, create liquidity. 
and um, they are going to issue a trillion dollars in treasury debt this year. And uh, so the idea of lowering rates, just if, if they're not going to get into the, uh, be in the system, if they believe that, if, if Powell believes himself to be the next Paul Volcker and does not want himself to be seen as the Arthur Burns the second, um, then he's going to let uh, quantitative tightening continue, probably leave rates the same, and uh, the Treasury is going to issue bonds, and rates with all that issuance are likely to tick up, probably not not tick down. Now, as far as the the, the bank term funding program, which if anybody listening to this program thought that that was some well thought out piece of fed machinery that they considered for months before doing, think again. It happened over a weekend when Silver or Silicon Valley Bank, you know, hit the ditch and they suddenly created this thing out of nowhere. And, and now it's hit an all time high, I believe. And, in uh, borrowings against it. And what, the, what it allows banks to do is lend against their security portfolios at par. And that's important because most of their security portfolios, as I mentioned earlier in this, is that they're, they're underwater. They're, they're, their bonds at, at, in a 5% market is, are not worth as much as bonds when they bought them at a 1% market. They've gone down 20, 30, 40%, but the Fed has allowed them to borrow at par. Now, if they're going to stop this on March 11th, that means they've got to direct people in trouble somewhere else. And, um, and that may be the, you know, the, um, some other Fed program that um, they either create or they already have in place. But believe me, the Fed's job, they talk about sound currency, which is laughable, uh, full employment, probably laughable again too. But no, their real job is to backstop the banking industry. And when I say backstop the banking industry, I really mean Jamie Dimon, and the rest of his buddies in that, you know, rarefied air of, you know, five, five, six, seven, ten banks, whatever it is. Um, beyond that, they're going to let some of the small fry, you know, go. And uh, so I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to have to do something. You're going that banks are able to borrow against that up until March 11th. But the, does that mean they have to? Okay, it's going away. Does that mean they have to pay it off? I doubt it. Um, they'll probably let it roll off over time. People who need to borrow have to go to another facility. Um, but I would be on the lookout. Uh, your listeners should uh, be on the lookout for, for new programs to be created or possibly a last-second extension of this program. Um, you know, that's what happened with TARP. TARP turned into a 
uh, a more of a permanent funding program. There's a lot of people, a lot of banks, I see people, a lot of bankers, a lot of banks that couldn't pay off their TARP loans back in the 08, 09, uh, 10. They couldn't pay those off. They created another program to let them term and out over time. And I would expect that that's what we would see. But we're going to have, there's going to be more issues in the banking sector. Don't look for it next week. Maybe it'll be a month. Maybe it'll be a year, two years, three years. This is going to be a slow motion terrain wreck. But um, there's, just, there's just no doubt. And combined with the issues we've talked about with people, with technology, and young people who have, young people, they don't care if their father banked the bank down the street. They don't care. They're just going to wherever, you know, who's got the neatest app and that sort of thing. So um, uh, there's no loyalty to um, any particular bank anymore. And that's that's all pretty good. Um, but we're, we're going to, one thing that will never go away, as much technology as they can throw at it, uh, problems with fr uh, fractionalized banking will never go away because it's inherently fraudulent. And of course, one way I know that they've been discussing as a replacement um, you know, for that, that uh, lending portal is to try to destigmatize the discount window. Yes. Um, you know, which is kind of, you know, in theory, supposed to be used for emergency banks or for, for, for times of emergency. You know, they're trying to force large banks to tap into that, you know, a few times of year just to kind of uh, show, make it seem normal for everyone else. Um, and so, you know, here we have the Fed trying to normalize emergency programs for the banking sector as a whole. And again, it's just humorous that they are taking these steps while assuring the public that, you know, and you, you mentioned this in, in your, um, your recent article on The Wire, that you know, the, the Fed claims the banking system is sound and resilient. Everything they're doing outside of their public statements says otherwise. The economy is great, but you know, we have to put in these protections for, for banks right now. Of course, this entire policy of kind of gaslighting the public um, to not see what is happening behind the scenes is the, you know, kind of the, the main uh, tool that the Fed has right now. Um, Generally, but yeah, they're, they're trying to normalize these these emergency programs um, to become part of the day-to-day the -day operations of some of these institutions. Yeah, this idea of banks going to the discount window, I'm, I, I can tell you from experience that that would, if you ever had to go to the the discount window, I mean, you would be you would be painting a you know target on your back, um, essentially. And so that's why uh, bankers would never, ever uh, want to go to the discount window. And as you say, though, they're trying to now normalize that. Oh, yeah, big banks, we want them to, we want them to use the discount window. Uh, there's even talk of having them store reserves with the Fed. You talk about consolidation. Pretty soon you won't have a local bank on the street. We'll have one bank in the United States and it'll be called the Federal Reserve Bank. And that's, you know, that'd be it if they, if, if banks were forced to just uh, uh, put reserves at the bank, just in case they, you know, should need them in the future. So. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up with that one. Um, 
the, the <laughs> this is a uh, an evolving situation, you might say, <laughs> and things could look very different just a, a few months from now. Um, and so, Doug, uh, yeah, well, we'll have to have you back with uh, when there's uh, there's some new developments in this situation because, yeah, I do think the the real estate, whether commercial, whether residential. Um, because so many people are tied up in it and so many local banks are tied up in it. There's such a major part of the portfolio that, yeah, I think it really continues to be just an important bellwether for the, the larger economy overall. So thank you for joining us today, uh, Doug. And, and if you're not familiar with it, make sure and uh, check out his articles. He has a lot of articles both on The Wire and on Power and Market. He's got his own website, douglasinvegas.com, which I mostly lift. Uh, most of that power market content I take straight from his site a lot of the time. The only time I really don't run his stuff is when it's highly topical and I, I miss the window on for it to be timely. Um, but for, for the most part, uh, right, it's all great stuff. So, yeah, check it out. Yeah. Well, you can only have you can only have so much Taylor Smith uh, Swift. <laughs> A lot of great stuff on gambling as well, which I always yeah, appreciate yes. your articles yeah, on. <laughs> if I could make one more comment, uh, just that uh, uh, I've got the fourth expanded edition of early speculative bubbles and increases in the supply of money coming out March 5th. Uh, this is a, a book that started as my thesis that I wrote under the direction of Murray Rothbard. Uh, Hans Hoppe was on my uh, thesis committee and uh, what I've added is a presentation I made at last year's AERC on the Panic of 1857. So you've got uh, an Austrian look at tulip mania, uh, the Mississippi bubble, South Sea bubble, and now the Panic of 1857. And like a box of Cracker Jacks, there is a surprise inside. Uh, not everybody can put the signature for a page from their original thesis um, in the front matter. So um, uh, the top signature is a guy you'll recognize as is the uh, second signature. So uh, anyway, March 5th, I know the I've talked to uh, Brandon Hill in the Mises uh, uh, bookstore and uh, he's gonna have some copies for upcoming events and uh, so eventually, I think, hopefully, we're going to have that uh, fourth edition in the, in the store. So I appreciate that shameless plug. Well, and there's also a link to the pre-purchase link uh, at the end of his Power Market articles. I know that as well. So you can go right through on that if you so desire. So <clears throat> thank you for joining us on uh, this episode of Radio Rothbard. And we will be back next week with another episode. And we'll see you next time.